we had this, uh, Esther and I had this discussion this week. It was kind of funny because uh, we always argue over who's big picture and who's little picture. Um, she swears that, uh, that she's big picture because, um, because she can, we, we kind of work together. She does a lot of the design work for the, some of the remodeling I do. And, uh, and she's good at remembering all, like seeing the whole thing and knowing what's got to come next and, and reminding me, you need to get the tile ordered or you're not going to have it on time and blah, blah, blah. And, and, uh, and so she's like, you're good at the, like the little picture stuff, the detail stuff, but you're not so big picture. And I had to remind her that earlier in our marriage, I heard this, uh, this sermon on eternal, eternal perspective. You know, there's, there's very few sermons that like stick with you forever, but I've probably got maybe 10 that I could almost like, cite verbatim. And this is one of them. And the guy was basically just talking about living with an eternal perspective, realizing that all this is temporary and, and whatnot. And, uh, and, and I came and it like hit me so hard that like I came home and was worthless. Like it ruined me because I was Esther would be like, Hey, can you change the baby? I was like, why does it matter in light of eternity? If the baby's got some poop on it, like, <laughs> you know, it's time to mow the lawn. I'm like mowing the lawn is such a waste of time. Like people are dying and going to hell. Like we have to think. So I was like, so this week she was like, uh, she was like, baby, sometimes you're just not big picture enough. I'm like, not big picture enough. I'm like crazy big picture. Like, like eternal perspective, big picture. She was like, okay, yeah, maybe a little too big. Maybe <laughs> need to bring it back in a little bit. But we're talking about that this week, which I thought is uh, kind of fun. We're diving into the second half of chapter 13 this morning on our study through Romans, um, which we're starting to draw toward the end of, um, which is uh, uh, a little bit sad. I've been having a good time in this study. Um, but this, this morning's passage, in a weird and almost subtle way, Paul's going to drop um, kind of the heart of this entire section of the letter, um, which is kind of characteristic of this letter. This letter, he has a tendency to drop these really profound kind of reality-shifting statements um, and then kind of slowly unpack them for us um, as things go on. In chapter 3, Paul makes this statement that most of us are familiar with um, where he says, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Like so much is shaped around that one little statement that he just kind of drops in. Um, and, and it's this incredibly leveling reality um, that sets uh, up transition, his transition into the kind of unpacking the gospel message, what it means um, to be saved. And then chapter 5, after establishing that God accomplished our salvation for us by sending his own son to die in our place, Paul says almost casually that we, have, we are now at peace with God. Um, no more striving, no more earning, no more fear and anxiety um, before we've contributed a single thing to the relationship we're completely at peace with God um, because of the work of Jesus. And we lean in hard to this because most of us don't live like that's our reality. We live like God is after us. We live like we have to uh, prove something to him, like we have to earn something from him. And Paul just states blankly, you're at peace with him. If he went to this great length while we were yet sinners, how much farther will he go for you now that you're in his family? Um, and then he dives into um, how our relationship to sin changes because of uh, this peace that we have with God and concludes that uh, this entire discourse with this really unsatisfactory um, verse where he says, see how it is then in my mind, I really want to obey God's law, but because of my sinful nature, I'm a slave to sin. That's just how he like ends the whole struggle with sin. And you're like, well, that's not the outcome I was looking for. Um, I was kind of looking for how do I get over this? Um, and after this, Paul spends chapter eight unpacking what that looks like. 
He ends with this beautiful statement that in light of, of all this great rich theology, there's clearly nothing that can separate us from the love of God. That's how he ends chapter 8. There's nothing that can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus. And again, after spending three chapters talking about God's sovereignty, how he not only navigates a personal relationship with billions of individual followers of Jesus, but he is also sovereign over the moving of nations and peoples and denominations and churches according to his will. And after just kind of barely peeking at God's sovereignty like that, Paul makes another paradigm shift. He says, oh, how great are God's riches and wisdom and knowledge. How impossible is it for us to understand his decisions and his ways. Um, Not that that keeps us from trying, because we all seem to claim to know exactly what God's doing and how he works and and, uh, and we're the ones who happen to have it all figured out. I saw a meme once. It was hilarious. It was this huge family tree. It was like the, the Christian church. And, you know, it starts with the early church and branches into these thousands of things. And the teacher's pointing, like, way down the family tree going, and that's when our group got it all figured out. Like, and, and, th- and that's how we live sometimes. We act like we're the ones who finally got it right and all the other ones are, are wrong. Um, but Paul's like... His ways are impossible uh, uh, for us to know. And then with another one of his giant therefores, um, which is a way of saying that everything that comes before this transitional word is completely essential to understanding everything that comes after it. Um, If all this is true, therefore this is what comes. With another therefore, Paul shifts into how the gospel should actually change our life out in the real world. It's, it's, a, it's a, a transitional moment in the book. Everything before that is about our relationship with God, our personal relationship with God. Everything after that is how that plays out, what that looks like in the world. And I don't know if you remember, but we called it an indicative imperative switch. It's a theological term, which Paul writes most of his letters this way. First, he lays out what is. This is the truth of the gospel. This is the way it is. That's the indicative part. And the imperative part is, and this is how you respond to that. This is how you live in light of that. Well, this morning's passage is actually kind of the heart of the entire imperative part of this book. Uh, or, uh, yeah, imperative, the, the command part. And Paul is just kind of dr- casually drops it in like it's not game-changing. Um, but here's the deal. This is actually a really difficult thing to teach about um, because it can be stated in five words, almost proverbially. Um, but you can spend an entire preaching career unpacking those five words and, and what they look like and how that plays out. Uh, but only when you um, pull out this kind of short passage um, and, and highlight it can you see its fingerprints all over this uh, kind of ending portion of the book. Um, so we're going to start with the passage so we can all kind of get on the same page. Then we'll look at how it fits into the context of the letter because that's really important and how it shapes um, everything else Paul says here. And then we'll look at um, what's required for us to actually do this, which is more complicated than it sounds. And then maybe we'll talk about why it's so important. Um, Sound good? Let's dive in. Paul says this, Owe nothing to anyone except for your obligation to love one another. If you love your neighbor, you will fulfill the requirements of God's law. For the commandment says you must not commit adultery, you must not murder, you must not steal, you must not covet. These and other such commandments are summed up in one Commandment, love your neighbor as yourself. Love does not wrong the other, so love fulfills the requirements of the law. Now, this is not new to any of us. We've, we've heard this over and over again. Jesus taught this, 
And the fact that Paul is teaching this, and Paul most likely never heard Jesus teach in person, um, means that the early church was apparently really uh, passing this on. They hung on to Jesus' words and, and they're spreading it. Paul picked it up and is saying it almost the exact same way um, Jesus did. Uh, and when Jesus says, uh, when Jesus said this same line in a Jewish context, it's really profound because the rabbis actually didn't teach Torah as pass-fail, like we tend to do it. Like, there's sin, there's sin and holiness. And if you're, you're either holy till you sin, and then you're sinful. Like, and it's kind of a path. The rabbis didn't actually teach it that way. Um, they didn't view morality as objective um, the way we do. It's actually a common thing in the Talmud, which is the, the Jewish commentary on the scripture that rabbis have, have written um, for centuries, just kind of commentating on, on, uh, on the, the Torah. Um, uh, they, they rank sin and righteousness. Uh, and so um, they, they would say, this is wrong, but that is much more wrong. And so if you have to do this to avoid doing that, then this is no longer wrong. It's, it, they, they, would, it, they were considerably more subjective in the way they, they looked at sin and righteousness um, because this can be more sinful than that. So, you know, um, we have a tendency to, to, to go at it pass-fail, like, doesn't matter if you lie or, or kill. You're still a sinner. Both are sin. They didn't do it that way. They're like, yeah, lying's bad, um, but sin, sinning is much. And righteousness was the same way. They had um, these things called mikvahs, which are like little good things you do throughout the day, and you kind of keep score. And certain things are worth a lot of points, and certain things are worth only a little points. Um, <laughs> incidentally, how many kids? We don't have that many kids in here. Um, the... I always tease my wife because they actually, um, to make love to your spouse is a mikvah. And if you make love to your spouse on the Sabbath, you get more points for it. And so, husbands, if you need, if you need that, um, note takers, um, yeah, you get more, it's a bigger mikvah uh, on the Sabbath. So, um, <laughs> my wife yelling from the back row. Uh, good stuff. That's not in my notes. <laughs> or she would have taken it out. Um so when they come to Jesus and they ask, Rabbi, what's the most important commandment? Um, this, is, this is a question rooted in that ranking system. It's not just, you know, to them that was a very real question because it's not just, well, the commandment is pass-fail. It's like there are some that are more important, some that are less important. What's the most important? And what Jesus does is he trumps the whole system by saying, I have a commandment, actually two, that if you do them... Um, they're not only the most important commandment, but you can sum up all the commandments into them. So he kind of, he kind of broke the ranking system and said, um, the whole thing is important, and you can fulfill it with these two commandments. And Paul basically says the same thing. For the commandment says, don't, don't commit adultery, don't murder, don't steal, don't covet. These and other such commandments are summed up with this. You can sum the whole thing up by saying, love your neighbor as yourself. Now, the context of this teaching, especially... Such a rudimentary and fundamental teaching so late in this book is kind of important. The context is really important. See, the dangerous thing about the way Jesus and Paul um, use loving your neighbor as a summation statement for the entire law is that we, forget to, we tend to forget that it's still law. It's still the law. Just by summing the law up in one easy statement doesn't mean you're not still talking about the law. The, the, no matter what you call it, it's still the law. I, uh, when I was a kid, um, I worked volunteer at the VA where my mom worked for, for a summer. And, and she found out I was 
slightly hypo, well, pretty hypoglycemic at the time because somebody brought in donuts and they dropped them off at the nurse's station. I just happened to be sitting there when it happened. And, uh, and so when my mom came over, um, there was an empty box of donuts. I ate all 12 donuts in a matter of like 10 minutes. Like I was just sitting there and, and, it, and I didn't, uh, didn't seem weird to me. There were donuts. And so I ate them. And so she was like, I have got to see your blood sugar. So she took my blood sugar and it was actually really low, um, which is how she found out that I was hypoglycemic. And she was really, you know, kind of panicked. She expected it to be through the roof and it wasn't. Um, but whether you say I ate 12 donuts or a dozen donuts or a box of donuts, it was the same number of donuts. Like I ate a lot of donuts. Um, likewise, Jesus says the whole law can be summed up in these five words. Paul says I can sum up what a godly life looks like in five words. We get excited, like somehow that minimizes our responsibility. It's still the whole law. Just because you can reduce it to five words doesn't change the fact that it's actually really hard to be holy. So the dangerous thing about this command to love your neighbor, if it's taken out of context, is that love just becomes the new behavioral system. It becomes the new law, this thing you have to do in order to earn God's favor. We're, we're mechanically asking, how do we love in this situation? How do we love, what does love look like in that moment? And honestly, we might as well be under Torah again, because it's the exact same thing. But in the context of this book, the whole book, a really strong kind of New Testament principle appears. The fact that Paul waits this late in the book to bring out this fundamental behavioral code. Because this really foundational rule, if you want to call it that, doesn't show up until after a whole lot of therefores in the book. This is true. Therefore, this is true. Therefore, this is true. Therefore, this is true. And then you love your neighbor. We're all hopeless sinners. God did for us what we couldn't do for ourselves. This means we have peace with God. That peace moves us to, to try and overcome our sin. So we fight and find that, that this new life in us is seeking to obey God and serve God, but our sinful nature is still there. And that's frustrating because sin is a noun and it's something that's in us. It's not something we do. It's something that's in us. And because the new life is eternal, there's no condemnation in Christ Jesus. Nothing can separate us from God's love. God is fully sovereign and beyond understanding. And in light of all of that, all of that love, all of that grace, all of that goodness of God, all that work that's done on our behalf, the only reasonable response is love. It's not a command. It's a response to God's goodness. We don't love as an act of obedience, a new law. We love as a response to who God is to us. John said it this way. We love each other because he loved us first. In other words, God's love comes first. God's grace comes first. God's work on our behalf comes first. We aren't commanded to love and off we go, teeth gritted, knuckles clenched, committed to show some love today if it kills me. No, our job is to, to, to fully take in and absorb and choose to believe what the gospel says, that we are loved by God when we have absolutely nothing to recommend us. And we believe that so completely that we can, we can hardly bear the weight of the grace of God and the, and the, and the love of God. And the only way to keep from being crushed by it is to give some of it away to others. 
John says the only way we can love, the only reason we do love, is because we are loved. Jesus told a story that communicates it well. He said, one of the Pharisees asked Jesus to have dinner with him. So Jesus went to his home and sat down to eat. And a certain immoral woman from the city heard he was eating there. She brought a beautiful alabaster jar filled with expensive perfume. Then she knelt behind him at his feet, weeping. Her tears fell on his feet, and she wiped them off with her hair. Then she kept kissing his feet and putting perfume on them. When the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, If this man were a prophet, he would know what kind of woman is touching him. She's a sinner. Then Jesus answered uh, his thoughts. That's spooky. Simon, he said to the Pharisee, I have something to say to you. Go ahead, teacher, Simon replied. Then Jesus told him a story. A man loaned money to two people, 500 pieces of silver to one, 50 to the other. But neither of them could repay him, so he kindly forgave them both, canceling their debts. Who do you suppose loved him more after that? Simon answered, I suppose the one to whom he canceled the larger debt. That's right, Jesus said. Then he turned to the woman and said to Simon, look at this woman kneeling here. When I entered your home, you didn't offer me water to wash the dust off my feet, but she's washed them with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You didn't greet me with a kiss, but from the time I came in, she has not stopped kissing my feet. You neglected the courtesy of olive oil to anoint my head, but she has anointed my feet with rare perfume. I tell you, her sins, and they are many, have been forgiven. So she has shown me much love. But a person who is forgiven little shows only a little love. Way back in chapter 6, when, when Paul was asking his big questions about sin, shall we continue to sin so that we can have more grace? Shall, shall, shall we continue to sin since we're not under the law but we're under grace? It would have been so easy for Paul, way back there, to just go, look, love your neighbor as yourself and you should be fine. It sums everything up. Just stop wrestling with all this and, and love your neighbor. But instead, Paul goes on this two-chapter epic battle against sin only to basically lose and conclude that there's no getting rid of the sin inside us, at least not on this side of eternity, just to declare us loved and beyond condemnation, even though we still sin. Now, what earthly good could it do to tell us that it's absolutely hopeless to win against our sin? We are hopelessly sinful and eternally, gloriously loved both. What good could it do to tell us that? And then you read Jesus' words. I tell you her sins, and they are many, have been forgiven, so she has shown much love. But a person who is forgiven little shows only a little. See, the, the gospel changes our behavior. It is a behavioral system but not by giving us a list of do's and don'ts that, that we work to obey to earn some favor or, or, or eternal standing. No, the gospel changes our behavior by actually overwhelming and inspiring us to change. But the context of this passage in, in the whole book isn't the only important aspect of this chapter. The context of this morning's passage in, in this kind of behavioral section is also cool. Paul transitions in, into the imperative portion of this book in chapter 12, and the very first thing he tells us to do after commanding us to give ourselves fully to God 
as living sacrifices is to find our people and figure out who we are. Figure out how we fit in. Figure out what we're supposed to do. The very first thing he does is say, you, you know, you're gifted and there's a reason for that. Find your people. Figure out how you fit into the body. Then he goes on this list of behaviors that we unpacked a few weeks ago. And it turns out to be a really tricky list because it's full of stuff you can't just white knuckle and obediently do. He says, don't just pretend to love people. Actually love them. How do you just make that happen? Don't be hospitable. Be eager to show hospitality. How do you muster up eagerness? Bless those who persecute you. Be happy for those who are happy and weep with those who weep. How do you actually love someone? How do you muster eagerness? How do you, how do you feel truly happy when someone is, is happy and it's annoying you? Case in point, have you ever watched the kids run around here during worship just as happy as can be? And it's distracting, and you're having a really hard time being happy with those who are happy. I'm not saying that because it's okay for the kids to run around, but it does reveal how hard that is. These imperatives really are hard to force yourself to do, which is why they demand real heart change from the inside out. You can't just pick them up as a new list of things to do. Something in you has to change. We talked about the need for the Holy Spirit to actually change us. When Paul rolls from there to our civic responsibility, which seems like this weird dramatic shift that we talked about two weeks ago, the week before baptism, but what I picture is Paul trying to sum up what it means to live a life as a true living sacrifice. He's like, find out how you fit in the body. Start doing good things for the body. Then he gives you this list of things that demand heart change in order to pull them off. And then he remembers he's talking to people who live in the capital city. So he's like, oh, be a good citizen too. Do your civic duties. We talked about that two weeks ago, about how profound it is that these people had to be reminded. They're so caught up in the church and so caught up in the kingdom of God and so caught up in, in, in what God's doing. They had to be reminded. Oh, yeah, by the way, you still live in the world. Even if you're not of it, you still have to do your world. Because they, 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 were, they weren't like Romans that had to be reminded they were Christians. They were Christians that had to be reminded they're also Romans. That's a big difference from what we have today. And it's almost as if Paul realizes that he could go on and on and on trying to think of all the different ways we should be living in the light of everything Jesus has done for us. And he decides to sum it up with the old faithful, love your neighbor as yourself. I could go on all day, but if you love your neighbor as yourself, you'll cover it. Five simple words. And this may feel like a cop-out, like, like when you don't know what else to say, you just assume the answer is love your neighbor. But in truth, this principle is the underlying foundation of everything that Paul talks about in this final part of the book. And if you lose track of that principle, nothing else matters. Why should you find the body and immediately ask for grasping the truth of the gospel, figure out how you fit into it? Because it's not all about you. People need you and, and your response to understanding the gospel should, should, should make you want to pour yourself out for them. Why should you be eager to be hospitable? Love. Why should you empathize with others? I mean, if I'm having a great day and everything is going my way right now, why do I want to weep with somebody who's weeping? Spoil my good day. Because of love. Why on earth would we pray for someone who is persecuting us and do them good? 
Because I can't get over how much He loved me even though I didn't deserve it. And giving some of that grace away only seems to make sense. Why do I care about government and taxes and debts and when, when my true life is in heaven and I'm only passing through? Why not live with an eternal perspective that just ignores everything going on right here? Because I know that society and structure is better for people and allows more flourishing than chaos and anarchy. So I choose to love. And believe me, the next chapter is swimming in love. And in fact, it's impossible to live out. It seems absurd to try and live out chapter 14 without this reminder to love our neighbors as ourselves. By the way, next week's chapter is one of my favorites in the whole Bible. I'm so excited to talk about this next week. You don't want to miss next week. See what I did there? Um, So right smack dab in the middle of Paul's treatise on actually living the Christian life, almost like it's a Jewish chiasm, which a lot of scholars think it is, but um, it's kind of funny if you ever read a Jewish scholar talk about Paul's chiasms, they're like, this dude was not a poet. Every time he tried to do a chiasm, it's clumsy and clunky and horrible. I don't know how to tell. I don't read Jewish Jewish poetry um, fluently enough to know a good one from a bad one, but... Those who do are like, Paul was, <laughs> he was awful whenever he tried to get poetic. It's kind of funny. Um, but I told you we'd discuss what, uh, what actually makes this passage difficult before we talked about what also makes it really important. Here's what makes it difficult. To truly grasp what it means to love your neighbor as yourself, we need to look at the word love, of course. Many of us have heard this before, but there's four Greek words the Bible translators tend to turn all of them into love when they turn them from Greek to English. Um, there's uh, uh, phileo. We've talk, phileo is like, some call it brotherly love. Um, it's like, it's, it's, it's enjoyment. It's, it's love that has a little bit of selfishness in it. Like, you're fun. You make me feel good when we're together. Like, I enjoy being with you. And so the reason I love you is because I, I like feeling good and it makes me feel good to be with you. That's okay. It's not a bad thing. But it's when you really like something. Um, there's eros. That's uh, you can see the words we get from that. Um, that's sexual love. We'd call probably call it lust. Um, there is like a like a um, an aspect of eros that's not always used towards sex, but it's it's uh, it's love that comes. Like if you if you truly love a cheeseburger, it's still considered eros. Like, if there's something in you, it's like, oh, my God, that's so good. It, that would still be Eros. Like, it's a, it's a physical, um, demanding kind of love, a hunger. Um, there's Storge, which um, is sometimes translated natural affection. Storge is what a mom has for a child. It's that love that, that is uh, it's just, um, it's just natural and happens. It's, it's, it's that unbreakable Sometimes it gets really mixed up with, with the fourth kind, but storge is the love that, that, um, like, that we just, even when you don't want it, it's like there. Um, storge is that weird uh, kind of love that I don't know that you fully grasp the love of God until you have a child. Because sometimes we read the scripture and we're like, God sounds so mean there. And he sounds so loving here. And, and then you have a child and you realize, oh, I can love this thing and want to strangle it at the same time. I, I get it now. I understand how I can want to destroy this thing that I would take a bullet for. Like I, don't, I, didn't, I didn't know 
And then you go back and read the scripture and God's angry here and he's loving here. And you're like, oh, no, I totally get it. That's, that's what being a parent is all about. Like, I want to both cuddle and love this thing and kick it across the room all at the same time. And I, I, uh, I don't know how those can happen simultaneously, but it makes God make way more sense now. Um, but the last one, agape, and we hear this all the time. Agape love is generally referred to as God's love. It's, it's love of the will. It's choosing to do good for someone it's love that's a verb, an action. It's something you do, not something you feel, not something you appreciate. It's, it's, uh, it's, it's not emotional love. It's, it's love in action. So even if you're angry with someone you can, and you don't like them, you don't want to be around them, you can love them. You can agape them. You can do good for them. Um, you can still love them. Um, agape is a verb. Uh, and so Paul says, if you agape your neighbor, love your neighbor, you will fulfill the righteous requirements of the law. That Greek word there is agape, which makes perfect sense. You don't have to like your neighbor. You just need to serve him. You need to do good for him. Treat him as, as you'd want to be treated. And mostly, you know, if you just want to be left alone, if that's what you would like, then maybe just leave him alone. Do as you would have done unto you. And that's generally the way we teach agape. It's, it's something you do. You don't have to feel it. You just do it. Like it's a discipline, or worse yet, another law. Except there's a problem with that. In the last chapter, Paul says this. Don't just pretend to love, and doggone it, he used agape there. Don't just pretend to agape others. Really agape them. How does that work? If it's just an action, if it's just something you do, if it's just something that, then how do you... How can you pretend at that? Agape love is more than just doing good for someone else. It's, it's more than just loving them with your actions. It's more than just choosing to love them. Agape is, is having the gospel work so deeply in your heart that you can see the image of God in them. You can see yourself in them. However buried underneath sin it might be, you can, you can see in them as... as as you reflect on your own unworthiness, someone worth saving. You see the worth and potential they have in the redemption Christ purchased on their behalf. The day I recognized the difference was, was with a homeless friend of mine named Greg. We, we, I worked with the homeless a lot in the church we were at at the time, and and Greg was kind of a pain in the butt, and, and he usually came drunk, and he had this big booming deep voice and the guy who usually brought most of the homeless people used to like to have him sit in the front row and if Greg was agitated like everyone knew it and this was a bad day he sit in the front row and and the, the pastor's giving his sermon and he leans over to, to whisper to the guy next to him he goes I don't agree with that at all and you could tell it was, it was starting to irritate the, the, the preacher and he was like I think he's full of it you know and uh, which thank you guys for not doing that when you think it, by the way. Um, but uh, but I could see it was starting to get to, to Tim. So I, I came up and I used to always carry cigarettes on me um, to share with the homeless guys outside if we needed it. So I came up and I got Greg and I was like, Greg, let's go out and have a smoke, man. And, and he knew he was being exited. So he's he's irritated. And we go out and I give him a cigarette. And, and I was like, you having a rough day, Greg? And he starts to tell me a story. And 
He had a job, worked construction, a lot like me. Had a truck and a boat and a motorcycle and all the things in a house and blah, blah, blah. And he liked to drink. And he went to a cookout at his work, made a bad decision, and, and, and drove home drunk. Um, stupid decision, but uh, not intentionally evil. And he hit a family. And he watched a 12-year-old girl bounce off his windshield and die on the pavement behind him. And Greg said, I can't, I haven't been, other than the time I did in prison, I haven't been sober a day since. Because every time I close my eyes, I can see her hit my windshield. I realized for the first time that I could be Greg. He wasn't evil. He made a dumb decision. I can make a dumb decision. And if I saw what he saw, I don't know if I could be sober another day in my life either. I was loving Greg with all the behavioral requirements of agape, but I could not see myself in Greg until he told me that story. I was, I was doing what I thought was agape. I'm loving this guy that I don't, at the time, necessarily think worthy of love. I was working with the homeless, but I was like, come on, guys, you've got to do something. Pull yourself up a little bit. Try. Like, that was in my head. I didn't say it out loud, but it was in my head. And then Greg shared a story with me. And it changed the whole game. Because for the first time ever, I could see myself in Greg. I could see myself making that same mistake. I could see myself screwing up. And if I could be Greg, and God could love me, is that the transitive property? Why can't God love Greg? And something in me shifted. Real agape love. Don't just pretend to agape people. Actually agape people. Real agape happened for the first time, maybe in my life. As soon as I heard his story, I could see myself in him. I could see all the potential that God had put in him. I, I could... I could see how much talent. I could see what Satan had stolen from Greg's story. And absolutely nothing changed in my behavior toward Greg before that or after that. I served Greg. I, I, we, had, we had Greg and a bunch of the other homeless people out to our house for dinner uh, after church once a month. Like we, I, I, we did our best to bless Greg. Nothing changed after that. But everything changed after that. Because I had changed. Something in me had changed. And that's what's on the table when Paul tells us to agape our neighbors as ourselves. It requires that we change. It requires something on the inside of us being transformed by the gospel of Jesus Christ. And this is the absolute essential part of the gospel message. I don't know how many different ways to say it, but the gospel message should be transformative. Jeremiah, when he spoke of, of our time, this time, he said this, The day is coming, says the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with my people of Israel and Judah. The covenant will not be like the one I made with their ancestors when I took them by the hand and brought them out of the land of Egypt. They broke that covenant, though I love them as a husband loves his wife, says the Lord. 
But this is a new covenant I will make with the people of Israel after those days, says the Lord. I will put my instructions deep within them, and I will write them on their hearts. I'll be their God. They'll be my people. And they will not need to teach their neighbors, nor will they need to teach their relatives, saying, You should know the Lord, for everyone from the least to the greatest will know me already, says the Lord. And I will forgive their wickedness, and I will never again remember their sins. This passage is going to be really important and meaningful next week. But God told Jeremiah he's going to change the whole game. He's putting the word on the inside where it could work directly. You wouldn't have to be told what to do because the word would be on the inside. The whole thing would be marked and rooted in forgiveness. But the work would happen on the inside. It's not a law from the outside. It's something that takes place on the inside. Jesus said, when I leave, I'll send the Holy Spirit and he will guide you in all truth. Paul, when teaching on on some of the most important virtues of the Christian life, said this, but the Holy Spirit produces this kind of fruit in our lives. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. There's no law against these things. And when we look at that list, we have a tendency to try to be more loving, more joyful, more peaceful, more gentle. But that's not what Paul says at all. He said, when you have the Holy Spirit active in your life, these will be the fruits that happen. Which brings up a spooky reality. You can earn nothing, improve your standing, not at all. You cannot draw one step closer to God by what you do. There's no behavioral system to the gospel. The gospel is the good news of a battle that has already been won. But the gospel will change you. It just will. Which is where it gets tricky. If, if, if you don't see any evidence of the gospel working in your life, if you don't feel the transformative power of God in you pushing and challenging you to be more like Jesus, then you need to wonder why. You need to ask God why. Because here's the deal. If you don't feel yourself being transformed by the gospel, you don't buckle down and try harder. You don't do more. You, you don't really lean into those fruits of the Spirit. You don't need the fruits. You need the roots You don't make a tree grow better by, by watering the apple. You don't, you, don't, you don't take care of the apple. You take care of the roots and the apple, apples just grow. Paul said when the Spirit is active in your life, this stuff just happens. It just grows. This is what comes out. If everything in this imperative part of the book sounds awful to you, if it sounds terrible to figure out who you are and how you plug into the body and serve, if hospitality and prayer and patience and hope just sound out of your reach, don't try harder to get those things. Go back to the gospel and look again at how little you deserve and how much you've been given. Look at, look at your faithlessness compared to his goodness. Don't turn back to the rules, the laws, the do's and don'ts. Turn back to the gospel. The love and goodness of Jesus. I truly believe the heart change precedes the life change. And the heart change only comes through the gospel. We saw, we saw this in camp. Christina, did I once tell the kids how to live? 
Not once did I say, this is how you do the Christian life. This is, this is what you do. This is what you don't do. We spent all week telling them the gospel is the good news of a battle that's already been won. And they started coming to us going, what do we do? Now what do we do? How do we do this? They were pumped. They were excited. They, they wanted to do something. When you're confronted with the gospel, when you're overwhelmed by the love of God, your response is the fruit. The trickiest part of the imperative part of this book is that 90% of the stuff in this passage is far more a result of believing the first part of the book than anything that we actually try to do, than anything actually behavioral. I mean, it's our behavioral response, but it's a response that is only possible if you've been transformed by the first half of the book. And I'll be honest, God's been doing some, some great things, really powerful things in our church over the past couple months. And it's not because I've been standing up here telling people how to live or calling people to repent and act differently. I honestly think people are being transformed simply because we've been focused on the gospel of Jesus Christ and primarily what God has done for us and how faithful he is. And all the way back in Jeremiah, that was the way the new covenant was supposed to work. God tells us to love our neighbor, but, but not just be nice, love them in a way that, you know, that, uh, that looks good. No, he says you're supposed to love them in a way that can only come from a transformed life, transformed by the gospel. But Paul doesn't stop there. He wraps up this chapter with a really great and practical summation, really. He said, love does no wrong to the other. So love fulfills the righteous requirements of the law. And this is all more urgent, for you know how late it is. Time is running out. Wake up, for our salvation is nearer than when we first believed. The night is almost gone. The day of salvation will soon be here. So remove your dark deeds like dirty clothes and put on the shining armor of right living. Because we belong to the day. We must uh, live decent lives for all to see. Don't participate in the darkness of wild parties, drunkenness, sexual promiscuity, immoral living, and quarreling or jealousy. Instead, clothe yourself with the presence of the Lord Jesus Christ. And don't let yourself think about the ways to indulge your your, uh, evil desires. In another letter, Paul calls this redeeming the times. And the worst thing we could do with this passage is to look at it as a list of things to avoid. There is such a list in this passage, But the point is far more general, and if you focus on the list, you might miss the other 50 things that could be on the list too. Paul gives us two guidelines for living in this this whole passage of the book. And I honestly think it can be applied to 99% of the situations in the Christian life to know whether or not something's appropriate, if it's the right kind of Christian behavior. He says to love and live with purpose. Paul speaks of urgency, knowing that every single day that goes by brings us one step closer to Christ's return or our exit from this, from this life into eternity. We only have so many days on earth to do good, to advance his kingdom, to make a difference, to share the gospel. 
The reason I say not to get hung up on the list is that Paul gives is because the point he's trying to make is that these things aren't fitting to a life lived with purpose. Someone, someone trying to shape their lives around love and purpose. Because we belong to the day. We must live decent lives for all to see. Don't participate in darkness of wild parties and drunkenness, sexual promiscuity, immoral living, quarreling, jealousy. I think you could throw a lot of American politics in there. Instead, clothe yourself in, in, in the presence of the Lord Jesus. Another passage, he says, all things are permissible, but not all things are beneficial. And as I said, this is not an exhaustive list. You could probably add a thousand things to it that aren't sinful. They just don't fit into a life being lived for love and purpose. I don't think Paul would say, quit it, that's sin. But I think he might ask what purpose it serves. But again, how do you wake up in the morning filled with love and purpose? It's not something you just white knuckle. You focus on the gospel until you're so overwhelmed by the love and grace of God. Then when Paul says at the beginning of chapter 12, present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, it's, it's the only reasonable response, only reasonable service. You study the gospel until that makes sense to you. You don't give your whole life over as a living sacrifice because you're commanded to. You do it because it makes so much sense in light of the gospel. When eight of our kids answered an altar call at youth camp, I told them that Graham and I don't give up our Wednesday nights. We don't give up a week of vacation time. We don't pray and plan and oftentimes pay money because the Bible tells us to. The Bible tells us to do a lot of things. We could pick from a long list of things the Bible tells us to do. We don't do it because we're afraid the kids are going to go to hell if we don't. God is bigger than that. We trust that, that he could reach them without us. We don't even do it because we love them, though we do love them. We do all these things because we answered a similar altar call years ago. And since then, the gospel of Jesus Christ has changed us so dramatically that sharing that with others just feels like the most natural thing in the world to do. We know it works. We know it changes things. We do it because we're 100% convinced that Jesus is real and that he saves and that in light of that, what else are we going to do? Esther and I have built a habit of anytime we're doing marriage counseling and the question of who's supposed to be head of the house and who's supposed to submit, anytime that like comes up, we've gotten where we basically say, if you're wrestling over that question, <laughs> you're way off base. Like if you're still having the who submits to whom question, you've got much bigger problems that we need to go back and talk about. You have much bigger issues to deal with. Likewise, Paul looks at the most common sense approach to the Christian lifestyle. If it feels like you're asking the questions of, can I do this, or am I allowed to do that, or prove to me that that's a sin, or in any way trying to figure out what you can get away with, you're probably missing the point. If you're trying to figure out how much you can do and trying to work the system, if we're overwhelmed by the gospel and live focused on love and purpose, I think most of the debates vanish. 
I think in marriage, once you realize, well, but we're in this together and, and submission and authority don't really make sense in that kind of relationship. And, and I, I, I'd much rather us both do well and, and, and figure things out together. Then you're, then you're ready to start growing. I think it's the same. I think when you're still asking questions about what I can get away with, you, you probably need to go back to the, to the gospel. So how do we respond to this? Years ago, my grandpa hired me to run a fence with him around his little farm he had at the time. We ran all kinds of fence, broke it into sections. took all summer. And I dug the whole thing with a post hole digger. Every fence post. I mean, we drove the metal post with a driver, but I'm digging all the hedge posts with a post hole digger. All summer. And we get up to the end of the summer and two days getting ready to start with football. I only had a week left. And we weren't going to get the last run of fence done in a week. And so my grandpa goes into the barn and pulls out a tractor with a huge auger on the back that he had all summer long. And I was furious. I got home and I was like, Grandpa's got an auger on the tractor. It took us like two days to run that. We could have done this old fence in two weeks. I'm, I'm throwing a fit. And my dad goes, very simply, he says, uh, let me ask you two questions. First, did it ever dawn on you that maybe your grandpa wanted to pay you for all summer? And if he'd only got it done in two weeks, he wouldn't have been able to pay you because he's not just going to give you the money. And number two, did it ever dawn on you that maybe your grandpa just wanted to spend some time with you? Immediately my perspective changed. I saw the whole summer differently. I kind of wish I could have seen that at the beginning of the summer. <laughs> but I think this chapter is one of those perspective checks. Is my life guided by love? When I watch the news, when I look at my social media feed, when I'm driving to work, when I'm interacting with my kids, my neighbors, my coworkers, am I constantly trying to get mine and fight for my rights and my opinions? Or am I naturally looking for ways to love and serve others? Am I guided by purpose? Do I have vision? Do I dream? Do I pray and ask God what He wants me to do? Do I question the things in my life and wonder if they're beneficial? Or do I just do what I've always done because, well, that's what I've always done? And above all else, if I don't love and I don't live with purpose then have I fully given myself to the gospel? Have I allowed its realities to change my realities? The way that I'd love to respond to this message is to wrestle with those questions. And even more, to, to choose this morning, if you haven't already, to believe the gospel, every word of it, and let it have its way with you. So as we gather around the table and sing one last song, take the test. Do I love or do I just pretend to love? Do I live aware that the time is short and every moment counts or do I just live? And let your answers drive you back to the gospel, back to the cross of Jesus Christ.